romantic style. For March, we'll be considering five competitions of historic proportions. Each week, we'll look at a couple or more of our favorite monarchs, and you will vote on the winner. You can vote anytime during the month. Please, please follow me on social media so you can participate and vote. I'm at at Shakeup History on Instagram and Twitter, and Carol Ann Lloyd Shakeup History on Facebook. Our first competition is about the very foundation of the monarchy. Which monarch do you think contributed more to the essence of kingship in early Britain, King Arthur or Richard the Lionheart? Those monarchs take the field on Wednesday, March 3rd, and you choose the winner. Next, a rosy battle, or should I say, a rosy war. We've looked at the Wars of the Roses before, but this time we're pitting king against king. You make the choice. Who deserved to win the Wars of the Roses, Henry VI or Edward IV? They both had at least one victory over the other, but now it's time for a final round. Your vote chooses the big rosy winner. Then it's on to the Tudors. The big guy himself asked this question in 1537 in the Whitehall mural. Did Henry VII or Henry VIII contribute more to the Tudor dynasty and to England? Henry VIII answered that question, choosing himself, but I'm not willing to take his word for it. So what do you think? Which of the first two Tudors made the most difference? Then, as it's Women's History Month, as well as March Madness Month and Monarch Madness Month, our final two contests will be between the queens. First off, a classic battle between cousins. Who was the more successful queen, Elizabeth I of England or Mary, Queen of Scots? Use whatever criteria you like and choose your winner. And finally, we can't end a royal rumble without a nod to the women whose lives redefined Henry VIII over and over and over and three more times. The six wives of Henry VIII changed England, changed Henry, and changed history. So now you decide which wife had the most impact. Who changed Henry or England or history the most significantly? So, are you ready to rumble? This week, Monarch Madness meets Women's History Month. Our battle is between two women who shared the island in the 16th century, Elizabeth I and Mary, Queen of Scots. Both were disappointments when they were born, as their fathers were desperate for a son. If only they knew. Mary became Queen of Scotland before she was a week old and Queen Consort of France at age 17. By the time she was 25, her position as Queen Consort of France had ended with the death of her husband and she had been forced to abdicate the Scottish throne. She fled to England in 1568 and spent the next 19 years as the Catholic alternative to be Queen of England. She married three times and had a son who became King of Scotland as an infant and eventually became king of England as well. In a time of kings, Mary was daughter of a king, wife of a king, and mother of a king. Elizabeth was born heir to the throne of England, a title she lost when her mother fell from favor less than three years later. Elizabeth spent the rest of her father's reign illegitimate and barred from succession by act of parliament until the Third Succession Act in 1543 put her back in the succession line after her half-brother and half-sister, of course. She was under suspicion during both of her siblings' reigns, experiencing accusations of treason and time in the Tower of London. 
She came to the throne at age 25 and ruled England alone for 45 years, the only Queen of England never to marry. She held the throne in the face of rebellions at home and threats from abroad. However, she died without an heir and eventually left the throne to the son of her rival. But that's just the basics. Who were these women and what were their reigns like? What is success for a queen? In a world that demanded men on the throne, how did Elizabeth and Mary make their own way and who ultimately was most successful? Let's take a look. Mary, Queen of Scots. Mary was born in a time of war and chaos. Her parents had two sons before Mary was born, but lost both of them in April 1541. Mary's father hoped for another son to replace the ones who had died and was disappointed when the new baby was a girl. But that wasn't the worst problem. Scotland had just been defeated at the Battle of Solway Moss and James V was ill. The king was at Falkland Palace when he learned of Mary's birth on the 8th of December, 1542, and he is reported to have said, quote, it came with a lass, it'll gang with a lass, meaning the Scottish dynasty began with Marjorie Bruce and it would end with his daughter, Mary. In fact, the Stuart dynasty did end with a woman, but it was Queen Anne way down the road in 1714. So, James's dis- about a complete loss of England and the birth of a daughter died just six days after Mary's birth. Scotland was vulnerable and agreed to a deal with England that baby Mary would marry Henry VIII's son, Edward. But Catholics in Scotland, including Mary's mother, Marie of Guise, opposed marriage to the English heir. Henry embarked on the, quote, rough wooing, seeking to take the young queen by force if necessary. But Marie arranged an engagement with the Dauphin of France, and at age five, Mary went to the French court to become Queen Consort of France. It's thought that this was when the family began spelling the name in the French way, S-T-U-A-R-T. Mary quickly adapted to the French court, picking up the language and customs. She charmed the French people and the French royal family. At the elegant French court, Mary grew from young from child to young woman. Francois fell in love with his intended bride, and he and Mary developed a deep friendship. Henri II was aware of English politics, and as the Catholic Mary I of England was nearing the end of her reign, he recognized an opportunity for his son and future daughter-in-law. Catholics didn't recognize Elizabeth Tudor's claim to the throne as valid, making Mary Stuart a possible heir. So Henri moved forward the marriage between the Dauphin and Mary. Francois was only 14 years old and Mary only 15 when they were married in a grand ceremony in Paris on the 24th of April, 1558. A few days before the ceremony, Mary was tricked into signing an agreement that gave France all the advantages in the marriage, including bequeathing Scotland to France if Mary died first without children. When Mary I of England died in 1558 and Elizabeth became queen, Mary, Queen of Scots, claimed the English throne. It said that as she progressed through the French court, she had her heralds cry out, Make way for the Queen of England! When she became Queen Consort of France the next year, when Henri II died and Francois became king, Mary, Queen of Scots, included the arms of England in her coat of arms. On their coins, she and Francois were recognized as king and queen of France, Scotland, and England. It was a claim Mary would return to throughout her life and never officially relinquish.
Francois, never in good health, died little more than a year after becoming king. Mary was now queen dowager, and the new power at court was her former mother-in-law and the mother of the new king, and that woman was Catherine de' Medici. So when Catherine de' Medici was not interested in Mary remaining in France, Mary had to leave. In 1561, she returned to Scotland to pick up her reign there. Before Mary turned 20 years old, she had been crowned Queen of Scotland, claimed the crown of England, and crowned Queen Consort of France. She had been married and widowed. She had seen religious chaos play out in France. Now she was returning to a very different Scotland than the one she had left, preparing to take rule of a country that experienced years of religious violence and had become effectively a Protestant nation following the reforms led by John Knox. Mary was initially welcomed warmly. Her half-brother, the Earl of Moray, had been ruling as regent. He assured Mary she would be allowed to practice her Catholic faith. Her people were fascinated by the young queen and willing to give her a chance. Along with Moray, William Maitland of Lethington, a diplomat who was able to work well with family factions, counseled Mary. The Protestant nobles, or lords of the congregation, were initially suspicious of Mary, but as she traveled through the country and agreed to forbid anyone holding the Mass in public, she made progress with them as well. Unfortunately for Mary, her next big decision would lead to disaster. Mary always intended to marry again. She didn't wish to rule or to live alone. Her choice of Henry Lord Darnley turned people against the Queen. As Darnley was English and of royal blood, just like Mary, Darnley was a grandchild of Margaret Tudor. So he was required to seek Queen Elizabeth's permission to marry, which he did not. Darnley was disliked by the lords of the congregation, who considered him arrogant and self-serving. But Mary was determined. She ignored all the counsel and married Darnley. Within a few months, Mary was pregnant. But the marriage had fallen apart. As her husband's dissolute behavior worsened, Mary withdrew from him and surrounded herself with favorites. Darnley was furious when Mary refused to make him king of Scotland. He resented the people Mary preferred, particularly her musician-turned-secretary, David Rizzio. The night of the 9th of March, 1566, about 80 men gathered at Holyrood House, where the Queen was entertaining friends. Darnley entered the Queen's chamber, soon followed by the others. They targeted Rizzio, dragging him away from the Queen and stabbing him 56 times. Mary later said that the Lords threatened her and her unborn child as well. The Queen was taken prisoner, and Darnley again demanded more power in the marriage. Faced with such dramatic danger, Mary proved herself a superior strategist. She managed to convince Darnley to align himself with her instead of the rebels he'd come with. She managed to reach out for support, feigning a miscarriage to get letters out to her supporters. With the help of Lord Bothwell and Lord Huntley, she managed to escape, riding five hours through the night to Dunbar. Rizzio's murder was a turning point for Mary. She realized the very real danger she was in and took steps to protect herself, her reign, and her child. Even though there was some kind of reconciliation, she probably never trusted Darnley again. 
Less than a year later, he would be dead as well. Darnley was murdered the 10th of February, 1567, when the house he was staying in blew up and he was found strangled in the yard. Bothwell was immediately under suspicion, and given Mary's history with him, she came under suspicion as well. Either by force or by choice, Mary married Bothwell, leading to a complete break with the Lords. With James Douglas, Earl of Morton, in the lead, the barons defeated the followers of Mary and Bothwell and took them prisoner. Mary was forced to abdicate her throne on the 24th of July, 1567, in favor of her baby son, who became James VI of Scotland. Less than a year later, Mary escaped her prison and fled to England, arriving in 1568. It was 10 years since Elizabeth had been crowned queen and Mary had claimed the crown of England. Before we address what happened over the years Mary and Elizabeth spent together in England, let's catch up with Elizabeth's life up to this point. Elizabeth was born the 7th of September, 1533. That was a big year for Henry VIII. He married Anne Boleyn in secret, knowing she was pregnant. He broke with the Catholic Church and the Pope. His friendly Archbishop of Canterbury approved his annulment from first wife Catherine of Aragon and his marriage to second wife Anne Boleyn. Anne was crowned in a grand ceremony in June. In a way, Elizabeth was crowned as well because Anne was pregnant at the time. As he counted down to the birth of his heir, Henry waited to prove to everyone his actions were right. Once his son was born, resistance to his leaving Catherine and to establishing the Church of England would, of course, fade away. He would be proven right in everything. So the birth of a daughter was a blow. Two legitimate daughters and one illegitimate son after nearly 25 years on the throne. Still, Elizabeth was healthy and Anne had become pregnant quickly. There was still time. Elizabeth was made Henry's heir in the Act of Succession of 1534. It would turn out to be one of three Acts of Succession that would shape Elizabeth's life. In January 1536, Anne miscarried again. In May, she fell out of favor with terrifying speed and violence. She was arrested May 2nd, charged with treasonous relationships with five men, including her brother. Her household was broken up. She was tried and found guilty. She was beheaded inside the Tower of London, May 19th. The next day, Henry was officially betrothed to Jane Seymour, whom he married May 30th. And Elizabeth? She was no longer princess or heir to the throne. The Second Succession Act declared Elizabeth illegitimate and removed her from the line of succession. It's reported that Elizabeth recognized the change in her status. She said to have asked a member of the household, why yesterday my lady princess and today but my lady Elizabeth. She was kept out of her father's sight and her governess had to beg for money even to buy her clothes. Still, she received an extraordinary education with tutors such as scholars William Grindle and Roger Ascham. She did go to court occasionally, visiting her father and meeting the series of women who were her stepmothers. In particular, she developed a relationship with Anne of Cleves that long outlasted Anne's brief marriage to Henry VIII and a good relationship with Catherine Parr. It was during his marriage to Catherine Parr that Henry enacted his final succession act, which brought both daughters back into the succession. So in the final years of her father's reign, Elizabeth spent more time at court and was recognized as an heir. Still, she and Mary remained illegitimate. That was what Edward VI used to deny them his crown. Edward's device for the succession, which named Jane Grey as and her male heirs 
as his heirs, focused on the illegitimate status of his two half-sisters. Even so, the people rallied around Mary and Elizabeth, and Mary took the throne in 1553 without an actual battle. People on Jane's side saw the way the tide was turning and turned with it, defecting to Mary, the daughter of Henry VIII. Elizabeth faced many challenges during the reigns of both her half-siblings. The arrest of Thomas Seymour, who had married Catherine Parr and joined the household where Elizabeth was living at the time, created a danger of Elizabeth being implicated in Seymour's charge of treason. Seymour's behavior toward Elizabeth while they were living in the same household and her possible interest in marrying Seymour after Catherine Parr's death were used against her. Despite hours of questioning, Elizabeth was not found guilty of anything that could be used against her. When Protestants rebelled against Mary I and her marriage to Philip of Spain, Elizabeth was again implicated by association. Wyatt had planned to remove Mary from the throne and put Elizabeth there as well. Instead, after the rebellion, Elizabeth was sent to the Tower of London and imprisoned in the same rooms her mother had stayed in before her execution nearly 20 years before. When Mary I was eventually persuaded to release Elizabeth from the Tower, she did so on the 19th of May, the anniversary of Anne Boleyn's execution. That fact could not have escaped either Mary or Elizabeth. Mary I believed she was pregnant twice. Mary's child would have effectively ended Elizabeth's chances of inheriting the throne. But Mary was deceived, either by a phantom pregnancy or an illness that convinced her she was with child. Mary's main priority had always been to reestablish the Catholic faith in England. She knew Elizabeth would not carry out that work. Even so, she could do nothing to prevent her sister inheriting the throne. Elizabeth became Queen of England in November 1558 when Mary I died. She learned from her sister's mistakes and tread carefully around the subject of religion. After her coronation in January 1559, she had her first parliament pass the Act of Supremacy, which reestablished the Church of England, and the Act of Uniformity, which created a common prayer book. But she took a more moderate approach to religious reform than either of her siblings had. She expected people to obey the laws of the land. She maintained she had no wish to make windows into people's minds and hearts. This approach was generally successful for the first 10 years of her reign. But then Mary Stuart moved in. Two queens, one crown. A series of events happened after Mary came to England in 1568. She asked Elizabeth to give her an army to regain her Scottish throne. Now, Elizabeth agreed with Mary that subjects should not be able to force the monarch to abdicate the throne. Certainly, Elizabeth didn't want that behavior out there. But as far as an army or fighting for Mary's throne, mm, that was a different story. Elizabeth's government actually preferred working with a new government running in behalf of James VI. They were dedicated to Protestantism, and they were a much safer neighbor to the north. Elizabeth did not want to offer troops against them. And then there was the question of Darnley's murder. He was, after all, an English subject, and Mary had been implicated in his death. Elizabeth didn't want the responsibility of my finding Mary guilty and having to punish her or finding her innocent and having to allow her to roam freely in England. Eventually, there was a trial where the so-called casket letters came into play. These were a group of eight letters, two marriage contracts, and 12 sonnets, supposedly written by Mary and Bothwell, that implicated both of them in Darnley's murder. 
The letters were reviewed and compared to other letters Mary had written. The casket letters were determined to be accurate. Still, many questions about their authenticity were raised then and now. Mary considered herself to be Queen of Scotland, so she did not recognize the English government or any authority over her. The inquiry determined nothing was proven or disproven against Mary. That meant Mary would remain in England, living in palaces, but unable to move freely for the next 19 years. Why did it matter so much Mary was in England? Her arrival in 1568 coincided with a series of rebellions and actions designed to remove Elizabeth from the throne and install Mary in her place. Her new availability right there to take Elizabeth's throne seemed a key factor in kickstarting these events. 1569, the Northern Earls Rebellion. Catholic Earls of Northumberland and Earl of Westmoreland led a plot to break Mary out of her prison palace and replace Elizabeth with Mary as Queen of England. They raised an army of more than 5,000 men who wanted to put Mary on the throne and return England to Catholicism. Elizabeth overcame the rebellion. Northumberland and Westmoreland fled. About 800 rebels were captured, tried, and executed. 1570, Pope Pius IV issued the Regnus in Excelsis, which identified Elizabeth I as the, quote, pretended Queen of England, excommunicated her, and called on loyal Catholics to not obey her laws and to do whatever they needed to to deprive her of her crown. This basically required English Catholics to choose Pope or Queen. By definition, after the Pope's movement, Catholics were a direct threat to the Queen. 1571, the Rodolfi plot. Roberto Rodolfi was an Italian Catholic who set out to assassinate Elizabeth and put Mary on the throne. The plan involved the Duke of Alba invading from the Netherlands, the support of Philip of Spain, Catholic nobles rising up and murdering Elizabeth, and Mary taking the throne and then marrying the powerful Duke of Norfolk, who happened to be Elizabeth's relative. The plot was foiled by Francis Walsingham, Elizabeth's so-called spymaster, who was dedicated to protecting England, Elizabeth, and the Protestant Church. 1583, the Throckmorton plot. Francis Throckmorton, who had traveled throughout Europe meeting people who wanted to get Mary on the English throne, organized a plot that involved a French army led by the Duke of Guise, backed again by Philip of Spain, invading England, drawing on the support of English Catholics in Northern England, killing Elizabeth, and putting Mary on the throne. This plot was also broken up by Walsingham. Mary was incriminated and placed under tighter guard but Elizabeth refused to have her put on trial. 1586, the Babington plot. Sir Anthony Babington was inspired to rescue Mary and put her on the throne, again, supported by a foreign invasion and the support of English Catholics. This situation was managed by Walsingham, who involved double agents, a beer brewer, and code breakers to monitor Mary's letters. When she agreed to Elizabeth's assassination, She, Mary Queen of Scots, was arrested, tried, and found guilty. Elizabeth had resisted calls for Mary's trial for years. After the Babington plot, she could no longer pretend Mary was not directly involved. It had been nearly 20 years of plots and assassination attempts to put Mary on the throne, and Cecil and Walsingham were finally able to convince Elizabeth that the presence of Mary in England was a danger that must be eliminated. Months after Mary was found guilty, Elizabeth finally signed the death warrant. 
She said she never intended for it to be carried out, but of course it was. Mary was executed for treason the 8th of February, 1587. Elizabeth's reign went on until 1603. She reached a pinnacle in 1588 as England prevailed over Philip's attempt to invade with the Spanish Armada. Despite repeated attempts, Philip was never able to invade England and replace Elizabeth. As the years went on, Elizabeth's popularity waned and people began to look to the next ruler as she had always feared they would. Elizabeth died in March 1603. Just like Mary, she was succeeded by Mary's son, who in addition to becoming James VI of Scotland, became James I of England. Time to choose. So who was ultimately more successful? Both Mary, Queen of Scots, and Elizabeth I were succeeded by Mary's son. He became King of England, carrying on Mary's claim to the throne. But he succeeded as a Protestant, fulfilling Elizabeth's goal of maintaining England as a Protestant nation. Both women achieved much, ruling in a world that thought women couldn't rule. But which one was more successful? Your vote determines the winner of round four. And next time, we're taking a look at the most famous six-person team in consort history, the Six Wives of Henry VIII. See you then. Thank you for playing Monarch Madness. Now, before you go, please take a moment to subscribe, leave a rating, and share with a friend. And I always love hearing what you think. Thank you so much. Be sure to make your voice heard. Vote for your favorite monarch at at Shake Up History on Instagram and Twitter and Carol Ann Lloyd Shake Up History on Facebook. And let's keep shaking up history together. <laughs>